I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the next episode of Trade Guys, we'll talk the new chips guardrails. We'll talk President Biden's trip to Canada and US-EU critical minerals pact over IRA concerns, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. This is Scott of The Trade Guys, and I wanted to announce that Bill Reinch and I not only do this podcast, but a couple times a year, we do a what's called the Crash Course in Trade Policy with The Trade Guys. It's an online course, takes two half days. We cover the waterfront in trade policy and politics. People who have come to this event find it beneficial, but we're running it again coming this coming May. May 22nd and 23rd are the dates. And if you'd like to learn more about the course, go to CSIS.org on the Executive Education page or look at the link in the notes to this show. Also, you could contact Aaron Delaney at edelaney at csis.org or visit the online store for course information. We hope you'll consider this. Uh, we have a lot of fun and people walk away happy. So thanks for listening. Trey guys, we're back and there's a lot to talk about with chips and guardrails. Scott, Commerce announced new chip guardrails this week. What are the guardrails? Well, when you think about why we're doing the CHIPS Act, why we want to build IT production capacity in the country, it's for national security reasons. So not surprising, there would be limitations on where the products of these government partially sponsored or subsidized facilities can ship the products. What they've done is identified two categories. One is the identified countries of concern. It's the list exactly as you'd suspect. People's Republic of China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. And the guardrails themselves are restrictions on the recipient of the grant. You can't take CHIPS initiative funding and invest that fund in another country. You, if you've got a recipient, you can't invest in manufacturing in any of those targeted countries if you're going to take CHIPS subsidies. The recipients also have to refrain from any joint research or technology licensing with a firm in one of those countries of concerns. Then there's also a prohibition that no significant transactions involving the material expansion of the facility from the, the CHIPS funding for any foreign country of concern for 10 years after you take the money. So it essentially ensures facilities built with the assistance of government national security funds will be devoted to U.S. facilities and will avoid national security rivals and adversaries. You know, I have a problem with chips. And like, I haven't really disclosed this yet on this podcast, but like, whenever we talk about the Chips Act and all the stuff about chips, my mind goes to the good chip company, which are these fancy organic Pringles kind of things that my wife buys at Whole Foods. And it's a real weakness, guys. It's a good moment to develop a food allergy. (laughs) I would go with, I would go with Ots every time. Uh, yeah, you're a Pennsylvania guy though. That's why. Well, yes. And, but it's the premier chip. Oh my goodness! It sure is. It's it's as American as apple pie, <laughs> and Chevrolet, and Chevrolet, yes. and, dogs. <laughs> and baseball. But guys, are these chip guardrails stricter than you anticipated? 
Yes and no. I think the first thing to say is that this is chapter two of the guardrails. They came out with, they meaning Secretary Raimondo and the Commerce Department, came out with an earlier version that didn't focus on national security as much as it focused on issues like, if you're going to take the money, you have to put in child care programs, you have to have some workforce development programs, you have to do a variety of sort of good citizenship things as well. And we, we discussed those on a previous episode because it raises the issue of, on the one hand, the government says, my money, my rules, which makes perfect sense. On the other hand, if you got too many rules, there's a question of whether companies are going to say it's too much trouble to take the money. And I think in this case, the money is so big, that may not be a factor, but it adds up. In this particular case, these are national security related guardrails, which I think are easier to swallow or or harder to object to. It is going to raise an interesting question, though, particularly for companies that have plants somewhere else in another country. What these new guardrails say is you can't engage in significant transactions to grow those facilities. Well, then they go on to define a significant transaction as anything more than $100,000, which in this sector is a really small amount of money. It's one white chip uh, at that particular poker table. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> and you can't, if you're going to make an investment, you can't increase the facilities. If you're doing a high-end chips, you can't increase the facilities production capacity by more than 5%. Those are really severe restrictions. And I think that it remains to be seen how companies respond. Some of them may say that this is really a global industry and we've prospered because it's a global industry and that this kind of restriction, I mean, it's fine to say don't do it in China. That's a national security issue. But if you're saying don't do it anywhere else or if you're saying where we already are, you can't grow more than $100,000, companies are going to say that's really going to cripple our, our competitiveness over the long term. It's really a distinction between facility and firm. If you're only really really restricting the facilities in the United States, companies can manage that. But global global firms have facilities where basically where the customers are for these things, have a lot of investment for reasons other than U.S. national security needs. Any restrictions that spill over from the, the facility that's been funded that affects the firm's conduct, well, I think will, will be difficult to manage. The other thing that would be difficult to manage is an addition to the list of countries of concern. Well, you know, nothing should restrict us from getting trade guys poker chips made up, since you brought that up. There's an idea. We're always looking for for good merch suggestions. Yeah, I mean, like, think about that. Your likenesses on some poker chips, that's that's a hot, that'll sell like hotcakes. Purifying yeah. thought. In trade guys we trust. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All others pay cash. <laughs> that's it. Well, just finally on this chip act, CHIPS Act, I can only imagine what's the likely response from quote-unquote countries of concern, which the draft identifies as China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Chips? We don't need your stinking chips. Yep. That's what I thought. And the Chinese have already said, they've already made very clear, even before all this, long before the CHIPS Act, that they intend to develop their own independent technologies. I think that what we're doing will probably accelerate that process at their end. One of the things being debated in sort of semiconductor expert circles is is whether they can do that. It's not just the chips that we're, we're controlling. It's the tools, the chip-making uh, tools. And where we've had some success bringing the uh, the Japanese and the Dutch, who also make have advanced tool-making capabilities, bringing them on board, I think the 
prevailing view is that in the short run, without advanced tools, like in particular ASML, the Dutch company makes, it'll be very hard for the Chinese to reach the level they want to reach. On the other hand, this is a sector where, you know, things uh, develop very quickly. You know, three years is long term in, in this sector. And I rather suspect that a few years from now, the Chinese may be much farther along than we think. But in the short run, this is going to complicate their lives significantly. The other countries of concern, Russia, Iran, North Korea, are really not very far along in this technology anyway. So well, they, they don't they have don't R&D programs that would lead them to their own investment, their own invention in the space. But they're going to buy it in the open market, whatever's available. And if it's not U.S. chips... I think there's a Tom T. Hall that goes, here's a quarter, call someone who cares. Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, that's a good way to end on chips. Let's talk Canada. President Biden's off to Canada. What's he going there for? What are the likely discussions he's going to have with Prime Minister Trudeau? Well, most of it's going to be about stuff that we don't talk about on the trade guys. It's going to be about the war in Ukraine and the level of support that both countries are providing. It's going to be about upgrading NORAD, which is a North American defense system where the United States and Canada cooperate and share a lot of information. Famously known for tracking Santa. Uh, and balloons, I yeah. think, is a, a more... Yes, but they do track Santa, but they also track balloons, making sure that that's that our NORAD is up to par. Two new issues, semi-new issues that are going to come up is um, the United States has been urging Canada to get involved in trying to deal with the problems in Haiti, where the government has essentially collapsed and gangs are taking over large segments of the capital. This is a mess from anybody's point mm -hmm. of view. I think the Canadians have some reservations, as, uh, which wouldn't surprise me. That'll be on the table. A little bit to my surprise, there are also migration issues on the table. Most of the migration debate in the United States is focused on the southern border. It turns out we now have migration issues uh, in the northern border in both directions. Yeah, I was going to say, there's Americans leaving for Canada. Well, not just Americans. We have migrants from the south transiting through the United States and mm -hmm. heading into Canada, which raises a different set of issues. Because we have a treaty that says if, if you're going to seek asylum in Canada, if you're coming from the America, America, I think you have to do something in America first before you can do that. But we also have people from the north coming across the border this way. So I don't think this is a situation that's out of hand, but it's a situation that I think they're going to be discussing. On the trade front, there's one newish issue, and that's critical minerals, because every country now is deeply into critical minerals for battery production and chip production, among other things. You need rare earths for chip production. You need critical minerals, a variety of them, six in particular that I think we've listed before, lithium, graphite, cobalt, and several others for battery production. And while these items are not exactly rare, they're not evenly distributed throughout the world. And uh, processing facilities, which are key, are largely in China, which is why there's a lot of vulnerability on, on these things. Not because China has all the lithium, but because China has most, if not all, of the lithium processing and refining capability. It turns out that Canada has got a lot of minerals. And, and they know it, and, and they're happy about that. Yeah. And they also have processing capabilities. And uh, there are two sets of concerns. They want to not only be part of company supply chains and supplying the minerals, like other countries in this situation, they don't just want to be 
an extraction economy, you know, where people come in, dig a mine, take all their stuff and go home. They want to be part of the value-added chain, which means not only processing facilities there, but they want manufacturing facilities there, battery-making facilities there as well. And there they have a gripe, because while they have, for the most part, got a pretty good deal in the Inflation Reduction Act on EVs, unlike the Europeans and the Japanese and the Koreans, there's a sort of a North American carve-out, but battery manufacturer is heavily weighted toward U.S. and U.S. content. And this is an issue where you're going to find the, I think the Canadians saying this ought to be a North American approach, not a U.S. approach. That's what they say all the time. It's, to me, it's the right answer from a policy perspective. Our economies are integrated. Biden is not buying it yet, but they'll be talking about it. There's also oldies but goodies, lumber, which has been going on for 40 years at least, which is quiet right now. Uh, The one that's not quiet right now is dairy. I was going to say milk, right? Milk, cheese, um, a lot of cheese, uh, and uh, milk powder and protein butter. The Canadians made commitments in USMCA on dairy, which, when all was said and done, actually committed them to allow in a relatively small amount of additional U.S. dairy products. We concluded a year or two into the into USMCA that they were not fulfilling their commitments. We took them to a panel in the dispute settlement process. We won. The Canadians said they would comply. They spent a year playing with the rules. The United States now asserts that the, whatever they did didn't work, and they haven't complied. So we started another panel, and we will see how that turns out. The basic issue is that Canada has a supply management program and they have historically reserved a lot of dairy purchases for Canadian processors. And the idea in USMCA was they had to open that up, not 100%, but more than they had. And they changed the rules, but the rules don't provide the additional market access that the Americans believe they were guaranteed. So the fight goes on. With the, particularly with ag issues, it's easy to get it all upside down. So because they and the, but there's no worry because they're, they'll be around for the next several years, maybe to the end of your career. You never know. They will probably also complain, even though it's optional. My, pod, my, my career may end after this podcast. <laughs> it's possible that <laughs> you, always, you always worry about that with us. <laughs> they may also complain about cool the latest version of country of origin labeling uh, for cattle. And it's evaded panic and, uh, you know, frothing at the mouth because the new rule is optional. Companies don't have to do it. The previous one, which was mandatory, we lost that case in the WTO and ultimately Congress repealed it. But it deals with this issue of basically labeling the cow, which is complicated. And it's particularly complicated with Canada because you've got cattle that go back back and forth across the border. Uh, They're born here and then they go to the feedlots in Canada. Then they come back here or vice versa. And it raises a very complicated question about what makes an American steer or an American cow. Just watch Yellowstone. Well, that answers all the questions, right? All the questions are answered in Yellowstone. But that was 1880. You know, this is 2023. this, This is the new Yellowstone. Oh, the new Yellowstone. Yeah. All right. Look, people talk in Washington about friendshoring. Why not with Canada? They're one of our oldest allies. And we're friends. We are, we are friends. We have we have this hugely long undefended border, and what we have is the largest trade relationship with any other country. And as Bill pointed out, 
a deeply integrated supply network. We make things together and sell them to the world. And there's uh, this is one I think it, it is so easy because it only has winners in terms of of if, if Canada is a part of our automotive industry, we're making batteries for automobiles and they are sourcing the materials of the batteries. Why don't we? Why isn't the whole project a North American enterprise? Guys, finally, let's finish today by talking about the USEU critical minerals pact over the Inflation Reduction Act concerns. What has been the EU's response to the Inflation Reduction Act? Not good, right? They've been very unhappy. They started out being unhappy about discrimination against their auto producers. Um, and their auto producers were unhappy. But then, uh, in, as the fall wore on, this began in August when the thing was passed, the auto companies did what companies always do, which is instead of waiting for the a government miracle, they figured out how to cope with it. Mm-hmm. And they're all making plans to you know invest here or do whatever it is they think they need to do to create a supply chain that, that will allow them to qualify for the, for the EV tax credits. The European governments, however, began to realize around, probably around Halloween last year, that the real issue for them is not just what are the car companies going to do this year. The real issue for them is the enormous amount of subsidy in this bill. It's a huge incentive for European manufacturers to move to the United States. And not just final assembly autos, but batteries and parts and components. Right. Because the bill contains a lot of different incentives to do that, and the Europeans are worried that this is going to hollow out their manufacturing base and move a lot of stuff here. The the American government's response has tended to be, well, that's your problem. Yes. uh, Not our problem. And Congress has basically decided, hey, that was the idea. Good news. We're getting more investment in the United States, which is what we'd hope to subsidize. Yes, that has been Congress's uh, attitude. It's a little bit amusing to see that all these people in Congress, including, I think, all the Republicans who voted against it, (laughs) suddenly discovered that there's going to be a lot more jobs and money flowing into their states. Because it turns out that there's a lot of basically red states that are going to benefit uh, significantly uh, from these subsidies, beginning with Ohio. And south from there, particularly uh, North Carolina definitely benefits, Georgia, Alabama, places where the uh, transplant auto industry is already. So uh, it's an interesting problem because in all the reporting that I've seen on this particular topic, I've seen a lot about what the Europeans are upset about, but I haven't seen a counter uh, request from the United States. What is in this for us that we'd like as a concession from Europe to make this deal happen. I don't see any bargaining going on. Well, our message to them has been, you should do what we're doing. And the very little secret is that they are doing what we're doing. Yes. My colleague and, and an occasional trade guy, Emily Benson, has done some research on this and discovered that, in fact, the European Union has come up with funding on sort of climate-related subsidies that is just about equal to what the IRA does. And so, in fact, the Europeans are doing already pretty much the same thing that we are. It's moving a little slower. They have distributional problems that are different from us because just like here, we have this question of spreading the wealth. Yes. So in the United States, every state comes in and says, I'd like a piece, you know, and I want some of those jobs. In the United States, though, there's only one federal government and and the states are not sovereign. In the EU, there's 27 sovereign countries and the commission has to be careful about how they spread the money around. So one of their rules has been, if you're going to make a big investment in a chip facility, for example, you have to make it collectively in four separate countries. 
Good grief. And you have to put, you know, some here, some there, and some there, and so Intel. So they can manage their own internal pressures. Yes. 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 I think it's designed to sort of spread the wealth and make sure that France and Germany don't end up with all the money. Because that's what often happens. They also have an interesting debate they have to sort out on chips, whether they want to put their investment into the very high-end, most advanced chips, where they really don't operate right now, Mm -hmm. or legacy chips, the older ones, which go into appliances and into automobiles, Mm -hmm. where there's a big existing demand, including in Europe. And the experts would say there's probably not enough money there to do both. They may try to do both, but they have to kind of have a discussion about priorities it's, and, sure. and you know who they want to give the money to. But what about critical minerals? Wasn't that the arrangement that Europe is going to produce critical minerals? Because if so, you know, show me the mining permits. Well, they have to find them first. <laughs> and they found them. Uh, so far, they found a big deposit, I think, of lithium in Sweden which they only have discovered recently. But that this is not a short-term play. It's a long-term play. I think we had a discussion about this the other day. And in the United States, the average time between finding an ore deposit and exploiting it, you know, producing it is 16 and a half years. Apparently in the EU, it's about half that. But half is eight years. still eight years, yeah. So, yes, there are a boatload of permitting issues. And even beyond permitting, it's, you know, building a mine costs money, you know, and you've got to put in all this infrastructure. And it's not just mining. You've got processing at the end because this stuff comes out as basically you're digging up huge piles of dirt and you have to go through it for a relatively small amount of the critical mineral. And you've got to do a lot more processing to get it to the grade that you it needs to be to make you know, put into batteries. And well, look, so that all takes time and money. Sure. It seems like Congress, though, understood some of this. And by adding or including our free trade partners in this critical minerals, we, we found what we have five that are or six that have active extraction industries, Australia, Canada, Chile, Peru, at least Colombia, and maybe Mexico. I'm not sure what the activity level is, but they certainly have, have some mineral extraction. So, wouldn't Congress just say, who needs Europe eight years from now? Let's get going. Do we need them eight years from now? Well, I think it's in our interest to have, to avoid choke points and to have more sources of of minerals. And the reality is, if if the Europeans don't develop their own, they're going to compete with us in Canada, Chile, Colombia, and all the places that Scott just listed. It would be better... I think for everybody, if they ha- if they have the resource in Europe for them to to develop it. Well, that's fair because we all want to buy a lot more, and we all want to buy less. Demand is going to go up. And we want to buy less I was say, there's no way we're going to. Ha- we have an insatiable appetite for this, just like everybody else. It's not like more it. so. Yeah. Exactly. Well, guys, this is a fascinating discussion. As always, uh, we'll be back next week with more from the trade guys. Thank you. Looking forward to it. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.